Simple Beep, episode 61, the iPhone at 10. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we're releasing this episode on a special day. It is the 10th anniversary of the iPhone's public release. I guess you could say it's the iPhone's 10th birthday. And this is shaping up to be a pretty big event in the Apple community. Lots of things are going on around this big milestone anniversary. And instead of a more traditional follow-up, there have been several pieces and interviews and things that have come out since we released our last episode that are all leading up to this date. And we wanted to point you to a few of them. The first one is probably the most popular of all of these. It's an interview at the Computer History Museum in San Jose, which we've covered in our Apple Museums episode, in two parts. The first part is with uh, a panel of three Apple employees who worked on the original iPhone, Neaton Ganatra, Scott Hertz, and Hugo Fines. And the second part was with Scott Forstall, his first major public appearance, uh, I think, basically since he left the company. The interview was originally posted at the museum's Facebook page, but they've also put a copy on YouTube. Friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, took an audio rip of the interview that was circulating and cleaned up the audio if you want to rather listen to it in your podcast client of choice. And uh, basically, we recommend that you go out and do that. At least listen to it, if not watch through the whole thing. There are a lot of good stories, both about the development process of the iPhone and some personal stories from the people behind it. Yes. And if you want to go even deeper on this, there are some good stories over just thinking about this, seeing uh, Neaton Ganatra's name in our show outline. If you haven't listened to the Neaton Ganatra and Don Melton interviews over on Debug, they did a series of those over the course of several months. That's like, I don't know, six or eight hours of interview content, which I think is one of the best oral histories of Apple. So probably many of our listeners have already listened to those, but if not, those are also excellent back catalog on the history of the iPhone because Ganatra was directly involved in it. Uh, Melton was on the Safari team, which of course spanned then from the Mac to iOS as well. We won't necessarily recap a lot of the things from these uh, interviews, posts, books, etc. here. But one thing I thought that was worth mentioning in the context of our personal episode about the iPhone launch from this interview at the Computer History Museum is Scott Forstall has asked, like, what's one thing that people initially misunderstood about the iPhone when it first came out? And that's kind of the thing that we would like to look at at the rest of this episode. Like, what about that first iPhone kind of paved the way or was misunderstood, all these things? And his answer is that a lot of reviews focused on the number of taps necessary to accomplish certain actions. I think he mentions sending emails in mail.app as a primary example. And I thought that that was pretty poignant because it showed that people were still looking at the iPhone in terms of other things like a desktop computer or a laptop computer where maybe keyboard shortcuts make certain tasks a lot easier and not in about the way that the iPhone's new approach to computing uh, would basically change the world. Right. And I think he said that a lot of the reviews were reviewing it like a mobile phone and thinking of it in those terms as well. And as we've come to see with the benefit of hindsight and that we'll get into in the remainder of this episode, 
iPhone is the title. It's probably going to be this device's name until you know until it goes away until it's replaced with something else which could be another 10 20 years down the line it seems like the smartphone as a whole has a lot of staying power i think uh if you read during fireball john gruber likes to say like never bet against the smartphone at this point like it's it's still the dominant player and if you aren't thinking of if you weren't thinking of the iphone at launch as the beginning of the smartphone instead of another mobile phone you are totally barking up the wrong tree. A couple other video interviews that have come out uh, leading up to this iPhone's 10th birthday is one over at CBS, kind of hosted by David Pogue, but also featuring Walt Mossberg, Stephen Levy, and Ed Begg. Uh, those four were the only people who got pre-release iPhones to have reviews available at the launch. And it's a fun interview talking about like what was their privileged process like having these iPhones before the rest of the world and what did they remember about the device at that time. The Wall Street Journal also has their own interview with Scott Forstall as well as Tony Fidel and Greg Kirster, who were all also uh, kind of upper level executives involved with the iPhone. And one final thing that we would perhaps be remiss in not mentioning, it uh, caused quite a stir, I think in uh in our community is that there's kind of a like weird it's like a like a tell-all book except that it may or may not have any kind of access so there's this book that came out uh about a week ago called the one device and it purport what's the subtitle of the the secret history of the iphone like this is gonna tell you the real story of how this was created just like that steve jobs movie did there were some quotes from the book that came out in advance of it, things that were um, disparaging of Phil Schiller and his technological competence, basically like calling him the doddering grandpa of the Apple campus. And people went back and forth on this um, and basically came up with the conclusion that, you know, this book doesn't have its story straight um, and you should not buy it. Um, but that may or may not stop us because we're, we're a little bit curious and would love to compare it to the actual historical research that we can do. So that's a possibility. <laughs> so for the main part of this show, we want to look back to the launch of the iPhone specifically. So we're releasing this on the 10th anniversary of the launch date. There were also a number of retrospectives that happened earlier this year in January that were on the 10th anniversary of the announcement. And of course, the announcement was a pretty momentous event because it was the first time that the world got to see Apple's vision for a mobile phone and had the, you know, really great showmanship and famous lines of Steve Jobs introducing you know, a widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and an internet communicator, whatever that is. Well, it's actually the heart of the iPhone. Yeah. It's not three devices. Are you getting it? And that, of course, was a huge event because, like I said, we got to see the vision. But as you mentioned, talking about that one interview that was just released with the four people the four humans on Earth outside of Apple who actually got to see them before June 29th of 2007. But the fact of the matter was that the rest of the world didn't have any kind of hands-on experience with this until it was actually going into ordinary consumers' hands at a massive launch. Uh, if you remember back to the announcement event, famously, 
It was at Macworld Expo when that still existed. Famously, it was available for people to see like rotating in a glass cylinder. And so like it they were putting the hardware on display, but not the rest of it. And of course, some of the stories that are in those interviews that we mentioned tell some really great things about the way that they had to craft the announcement to make it actually work and working down to the night before to get things just so with the, I think, like 24 demo units that they had. And, uh, you know, some of these things have, uh, have been talked about previously and sort of made their way into the lore, like the fact that they just hard-coded five bars of signal strength in the status bar because they didn't know what the actual signal strength in the auditorium would be. And of course, all the demos were going on Wi-Fi anyway, um, except for the the phone call. To Starbucks? The, yes, the famous phone call to Starbucks. Sort of, you know, <laughs> Steve Jobs ordering a, a million fajitas from Starbucks <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And other things about the demo and the hardware not being ready was the fact that uh, I think, I forget who it was in the panel, said that it was called the Golden Path that they created for the demo, where basically the way that things were loading into memory in that iPhone OS 1 on that pre-production hardware, if you loaded certain apps in a certain order, it would always crash. And if you loaded them in a different order you would have a high chance of making it through. So they ran basically like decision tree, like they tested it out beforehand to figure out like, okay, Steve, you have to actually show this feature before that feature or otherwise the whole thing is going to go down in flames. Yeah, I think one of them said that there's a part of it where uh, music is playing and they said like, you know, the demo went great and the they get to the point in this golden path where a song has to start playing. And now whenever that engineer hears that song, he gets a wave of relief <laughs> because it like it's like a sense memory back to the point of like, ah, we hit the most like demanding point of our demo and it worked. And the result of the song is playing. And now whenever it comes on shuffle, he gets that same relief. So then there was that gap. I mean, we, we talked about the announcement briefly on the show back in January. And January seems like a very long time ago. And there there was that huge gap before the phones actually went to market. And of course, there are reasons for that. Things like uh, getting the FCC approval uh, in the United States, which would require uh, making publicly available records that included things like design schematics that they did not want to file until after the product had been announced. Uh, And of course, the fact that this is a way that Apple has operated for a long time, where if they're introducing a new product line, they're not nearly as reticent to pre-announce it because they don't feel like they're necessarily harming their own sales. They're not cannibalizing their own sales at that point. I mean, yes, there were probably a handful of people who didn't buy an iPod between January and June of 2007 because they were waiting for the iPhone. But given the huge difference in price between them, number of other factors, they're totally different products. So, this long period passed. And then all of a sudden, we were there, launch day. And this is the first part of our episode that we want to dig a little deeper on, is the the kind of the spectacle of the original iPhone launch, what truly happened 10 years ago on the day that we release this episode. And I think the, the main 
attraction of all these different Apple stores and AT&T stores uh, celebrating this launch was the fact that people were camped out for this thing, which maybe by now seems like something that happens for every major consumer electronic but it wasn't such a commonplace thing to, you know, sit in line outside the Fifth Avenue Apple Store in New York City days before the thing was going to go on sale, sight unseen. Right. So we have a summary here of uh, five different major Apple stores uh, that got coverage in Macworld on the day of the release. And we'll put a link to that in the notes uh, in Arlington, Virginia, San Francisco, New York and King of Prussia, uh, Pennsylvania. And it was interesting to see the sort of varying intensities of the lines there. But I think in all of these cases, people were talking about waiting on the scale of hours, not days. And so even though it was something of a magnitude that we had never seen, it was not perhaps the largest phenomenon that we would yet see in terms of uh, of these these massive product lineups. And But I do think that that is the number one thing that we think of well to me you say what do you think of when you when you say uh launch day for a new iphone i think of people other people not me usually uh in camp chairs uh waiting waiting to go into a physical apple store or in my case i think of driving out to the fedex depot to get the package that was not successfully delivered to my house um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that came a few years later Let's go back now, though, to that 2007, the, the very first day. And there's one other store that got a little bit of special treatment on the first day. Yes, this was the Palo Alto Apple Store right downtown on University Avenue. Uh, Steve Jobs actually went to the store to see how the launch was going. And uh, there's some video of this on YouTube. And the video is actually from 2007. I'd forgotten that that YouTube itself was that old. Um, and I remember this very clearly because I was in the process of moving to Palo Alto on this day um, to because I think I was in the second round of interviews to work at Facebook. And uh, the walk from Steve Jobs's home downtown to the Apple store uh, was very close to the walk I would make to get from where I was living in Palo Alto to Facebook's campus, downtown Palo Alto. So I. Uh, I heard about this and I missed Steve, but I did get to see some of the hullabaloo in downtown Palo Alto that day. But you were you were not purchasing an iPhone that day. I was not. <laughs> Neither was I. I had an HTC Excalibur that was terrible, but <laughs> doing the job without me needing to spend a lot of money. Well, I think one of the things, I, I mean, we can address that now. I didn't buy an iPhone on, on launch day for like, it was like three strikes, basically, was... Um, at that point, I was a poor grad student. My cell service was through a family plan with my parents because I was a poor grad student. And that cell plan was on Verizon. So there was just no way that I was going to jump through the hoops to get out of a Verizon contract, pay for it all myself, and then drop an additional $600 to, uh, to have an iPhone. But for the people who did, it was an event. If you did it in Palo Alto, you may have gotten to rub shoulders with Steve Jobs. Uh, Scott Forstall has also uh, accompanied him, and you can see him in the clip too. Um, and the Apple Store employees made sure that you felt that this was a big day. Um, the phone went on sale, I think, 
6 p.m. regionally. Uh, so it wasn't like the store itself opened and you filed in to buy the iPhone. It was like a very specific time where the iPhone went on sale and uh, people would clap and cheer and then like kind of make that tunnel of employees as you went to the special designated place to buy and activate the phone. And then you had to go back through that tunnel to get back outside and you've got your special bag that has the iPhone on it and everyone's applauding you like you've just uh, like won the Olympics or something. The entire experience uh, certainly seemed like a, a big deal. And certainly Apple Retail hadn't prepared for anything of this magnitude before either. And it, of course, in some places it showed. Uh, you mentioned also activating the phone in store, which had relied on not just Apple's store infrastructure, but AT&T's server infrastructure that was not prepared for the task. And so things went things went slowly, and maybe you actually deserved that applause on the way out. But I was saying the stores were maybe not prepared for this. I think the biggest event that they had coordinated at any point prior to this was the uh, the infamous midnight release of Mac OS X 10.2 Jaguar, which was a thing that they actually did. Uh, there's still a press release on Apple's website, uh, and that was five years prior. Uh, for Jaguar Unleashed in August of uh, August of 2002. Yeah, we'll be talking later in this episode about some of the things on the original iPhone that may sound out of date now, but the concept of waiting in line in front of a retail store late at night to drop over $100 for an upgrade to your computer's operating system, especially the Mac in the early 2000s, uh, seems like the most foreign and out-of-date concept. And like we said, we still associate this with iPhone launches because in some respects, uh, it's one of the better ways if you're willing to spend the time and effort to guarantee actually getting a phone on launch date. And it's led some people to go to kind of extraordinary ends. Uh, one of my favorite stories about people waiting in a line or trying to get early in a line, usually it's they go to their local store, right? And you you go to the Apple store in your city and you get there maybe the night before if you're really dedicated or you get there a couple hours before opening because now they do it when the store opens, usually at like 8 a.m. Sometimes they open a little early. Um, I think most, most stores usually open at like 9 or 10 a.m. depending on where they're located. But some people take this the extra mile and one of the organizations that did that is iFixit, who... Every time that, well, I mean, practically any tech product, not just Apple stuff, even though that's kind of their bread and butter, anytime a new product comes out, they acquire one as quickly as possible, and they do their full teardown on it to see what all the components are inside, uh, take nice explosive view photos of it, and talk about whether they think it's repairable or not. So uh, I think this was for the iPhone 5S. Yeah, we'll, we'll link it up in the show notes. For the iPhone 5S... What they did was they wanted to have their teardown coverage ready to go basically by the time that anyone in the U.S. actually had their phone in their hands. And how are they going to manage to pull that off? Well, <laughs> the magic of time travel or time zones, I suppose. So they actually flew someone to Australia to line up at an Apple store there which is 17 hours ahead of U.S. East Coast time, 
or no, maybe 17 hours ahead of West Coast time. That sounds right. Um, but 17 hours before the phone would go on sale in Apple's hometown in California. And so they got someone right at the front of the line. They got their phone first thing in the morning in Australia. They took it to their local lab and did their full teardown and had it posted before people were even awake in the United States, uh, which is just, like I said, incredible lengths that you would go to to make sure that you were at the very beginning of of a new generation of iPhones. But that's the thing. That's the thing that the you know that the iPhone still sort of stirs up in people is that they want to have it, you know, not just the week that it comes out, but the instant that it comes out. It's like a midnight movie showing. The theater is going to keep playing the movie for a few more weeks. Like you can still see it. You can still pay the same price to see it. You can still see it in the same place. But there are the people who want to be there as part of the event that is the the very first showing or be the very first person to walk out of the store with the bag. And of course, now uh, we also have the uh, the online pre-order rush, which if you're on the U.S. East Coast is not fun because it's at three in the morning and you have to set an alarm and wake up in the middle of the night. Uh, and then you may get a phone that will be guaranteed to arrive on the launch day. Or maybe you miss it, or maybe you decide to wake up at a sane hour, and uh, it's scheduled to come two or three weeks after the launch date. And in that case, your fallback to get it on that early date is to go to the store. Another thing about this launch, Ed, you kind of already covered, uh, the iPhone launched at the price of $499 for the entry-level 4-gigabyte model, which, again, is like only 4 gigs, and $599 for 8 gigabytes of storage. But for the majority of the iPhone's 10-year history, those prices seem really high. Of course, as we record this now, we're kind of back to this unsubsidized pricing structure. Um, But if we had recorded maybe like a 5-year iPhone retrospective $499 for entry level, let alone for four gigabytes at entry level would have seemed crazy high. And consumer, I guess, uh, response to this indicated the same, even though there was no precedent for what a like a completely out of this world smartphone full screen multi-touch should go for. So only a couple months later, the price dropped $200 and even stopped selling four gigabyte models. So it, what was it? 399 for eight gigabytes. And that was pretty soon after this release where it was available to everybody. And those people we were just talking about who needed to have it first and needed to be the first people to experience it, uh, understandably threw a little bit of a fit. And it resulted in one of those rare Steve Jobs letters posted at the Apple Hot News uh, website. We've covered, I think, thoughts on Flash and thoughts on DRM before. But there is an, uh, a letter from Steve talking about the price drop and how like, they wanted to make it right for future customers of iPhone, but they also want to make it right for people who have already spent the, the higher price. And I think the recompense was $100 in Apple Store credit. So not a full rebate. Uh, but you know, not nothing either. It's just the price of being first. But it was one of the things that Apple addressed even further with the release of the iPhone 3G the next year, 
uh, I think it's one of like the main tentpole new features was a low price because they finally worked in subsidy models with the major carriers. The major carrier still at that point, still AT&T exclusive at that point. That's right. And the entry-level $199 price point stayed for a long time and officially from Apple's side all the way up until the iPhone 7, though before that, uh, I know here in the U.S., those plans like AT&T Next started uh, taking place of the carrier subsidy that would let you buy in initially at the low price. Right. So that's that's the thing now is if you look at the iPhone 7 pricing now, it starts at $649 because that $450 is is now you're paying that directly up front and then you'll have presumably a lower bill than you would have at the iPhone's launch where you would pay something like $500 or $600 and then still expect to have like a $70 a month, $75 a month phone bill for that single line. Whereas now if you buy a iPhone and totally pay it off, then your bill, if you do things right uh, in the US is something more like $40 for a single line plan. Uh, including a, a decent amount of data, although not the unlimited data that came with the original. And of course, unlimited through a very narrow pipe, because the first iPhone was only on the 2G Edge network, which meant that it was great for email and very light web browsing, but uh, was pretty slow for most tasks, certainly no streaming video. You mentioned, Brian, you know, YouTube was just getting off the ground at that point, maybe a, a year and a half old at that point, I think, uh, something like that. And uh, that was not something that was really even conceived of, even for this revolutionary device. Uh, 3G made things much, much better in just a year's time. And then AT&T and other carriers realized that unlimited at 3G and higher speeds is... Uh, is quite a lot to promise a customer, but there are still those who are hanging on, hanging on desperately to their plans that have still carried over from those first couple years of the iPhone and are promising unlimited data. And now that means at, you know, much, much higher speeds. I mean, I can get, um, I can get probably like 50 megabits down. Nice. Um, on AT&T in my area. Um, which means that you could, you know, like probably the amount of download traffic that I could manage in about an hour now is about the unlimited month that you would have gotten with the original iPhone. <laughs> and thinking about just the sticker shock and looking towards the future, there's been speculation now that if we get some sort of magical 10th anniversary unicorn iPhone 8 in the fall, that now that people have had a year or so to assimilate to the unsubsidized prices, that that phone may be substantially more expensive. People talking of it pushing upwards of $1,000, which would be, in terms of, you know, in terms of what Apple's actually taking in for that, even if you factored out subsidies in the intervening years, that would be by far the most expensive iPhone to date, all, all things considered. The next thing we want to talk about is the technology that's more in the classic Mac era that we often talk about uh, that are the things that the iPhone wouldn't exist if it weren't for in 
uh, if it weren't for these technologies that were in its past. And some of them were direct predecessors, and some of them were inspirations that eventually led to things that became familiar on iOS and the iPhone. We've had a couple episodes more recently about the Newton. And of course, you can see the line of progression from one touch-based handheld portable device that had networking to the iPhone. But I think this was more of an inspirational device, not a direct descendant, even though you can clearly see some of those inspirations without having to squint. Um, I think one of the things when we talked about the Newton that we discovered uh, was like closer to the iPhone than we expected were the kind of widgety pre-installed Newton apps that very closely mirrored a lot of the apps and functions that came with the first iPhone. Things like notes and a calculator and a contact manager, which may seem like standard for a portable device uh, in any context, but uh, the the way that they were managed and the way that they some were even designed, like the notes in particular, um, really had a, a clear line of progression from the Newton to the iPhone. And of course, there are some other uh, more esoteric uh, or maybe even coincidental similarities between the Newton and the iPhone, like the fact that they both run on ARM processors, that sort of thing. Uh, I think it is important to note, though, and this came out in several of the interviews people asked, like, did you, like, pull a Newton out of a drawer and figure out how to make this stuff based on it? And the fact of the matter is that if you think about the the overall history and of the iPhone being a very Steve Jobs-led project, and the history of the things that went into it, that if, especially if you've if you follow WWDC or do any sort of iOS programming or familiar to you, you know that a whole lot of the iPhone's roots come from Next and come from the influx of talent uh, led by Scott Forstall and others that came in from Next with that acquisition and with the return of Steve Jobs to the CEO role at Apple. And so that's really the past heart and soul of uh, of that software stack that went into the iPhone. And at that same time as there was that changing of the guard as Next in and some classic Apple out, one of the things that was quickly canceled after Jobs' return was the Newton project. So it wasn't really going to be like put up on a pedestal and say, like, this is the model for how we should create a handheld device. One of the things that was certainly considered as a model for a handheld future handheld device, future mobile phone for Apple when they were working towards the iPhone was their existing handheld product that was a smash hit, which was the iPod, and of course was developed in-house after that transition happened. And there are some interesting stories about what went on with uh, a couple different prototypes that are now known, well, known then, and uh, it's become public now that they were called P1 and P2. And essentially the P1 prototype for a Apple mobile phone was built around iPod hardware, right down to the click wheel, and that being a primary input device. Whereas then the other one is what eventually won out, which is the multi-touch capacitive touchscreen. And 
It's interesting to see how many iPod roots there are in the original iPhone. Of course, it was billed on stage as at least one third iPod, and uh, that was that was of course a major feature of it. And, you know, it was supposed to. Uh, many people talked about it being finally like they had a phone and they had an iPod, and that was two devices for two pockets, and you could combine them into one. Um, so with the iPod success, uh, with, you know, with its form factor and everything else that was considered a a possibility, uh, certainly smaller screen, uh, might have been more cost efficient. They knew how to produce them better. Not this, uh, brand new technology that was being worked on in a totally different area with multi-touch in Apple. And so there were some fairly significant early builds of the operating system. Some of these came out in uh, videos that we'll link to in the show notes. I I went back and looked at these earlier today, and I was a little bit puzzled because it was the notion was that this would work on a click wheel device, but then everything that's made it out of infinite loop uh, and the serious security that they were working under uh, for iPhone production pre-production. The things that have made it out for like the P1 software, they're all running on an actual iPhone or iOS device with like a simulated click wheel. And that just seems wrong to me. It seems like this software was probably being developed for hardware click wheels. So I don't know if what we've seen of those early prototypes is necessarily accurate. One of the things, of course, that did make it in terms of hardware from the iPod to the iPhone was the iPod dock connector, which shipped on every iPhone up through the iPhone 4S. And that was the way that you uh, plugged it in, uh, both for power, connecting to iTunes, which was that important activation step that was required for the first few years, um, doing backups, which you can still do by plugging into iTunes. iTunes is not dead yet, at least as of this recording. Um and that was the primary input-output uh, port for the device. And there was this huge ecosystem that came up around it, hardware ecosystem, the made-for-iPhone project um, with licensing to third parties. Every hotel room still has a 30-pin dock connector in it <laughs> now, it seems like. Yeah. And it's like, well, guys, that's that's a little old now. And, of course, people freaked out when it was replaced with Lightning, even though... I think everyone recognizes that the lightning connector is certainly superior to that crunchy experience of those 30 pins going in and out. Um, and the fact that some of them had the little uh, little grippers and some of them didn't, and you would try to yank a cable out and it would be actually stuck in. It was not the world's best connector, but it had achieved success with the iPod. And so people were familiar with it. Again, part of the hardware supply chain and something that was a hallmark of the iPhone for several years after its launch. So that was on the hardware side. On the software side, uh, the fact was that there was also uh, competing software projects, again, coming from either the iPod OS software or coming from Mac OS X itself. And once 
the multi-touch team had this notion that okay well we could we could run something that's more like a desktop operating system on this obviously with major interface changes but the notion was that they could build from mac os 10 and there was a uh, a mandate for them to try to do that and they had to really like chop down os 10 to fit on that four gigabyte device because if you had you know a comparable install of mac os 10 at that point it was probably two and a half three gigs just for just for that because you were installing it on a 120 gig hard drive uh pre you know it was pre-ssd era and even even now the small ssds are in that 128 gigabyte now even 256 gigabyte range so at a mac os 10 installed it, you know it's it's very uh it, it leaves a lot of free space but if you had put it on one of these flash storage devices that was in an iPhone prototype, you'd be running out of space to do anything else with the device. So they had to do a lot of work to get it down to, you know, just the kernel and the frameworks that were necessary to build something, to, to build the interface layer on top of. And that's what became iPhone OS 1 and laid the groundwork for iOS in the future. But the fact that it came from OS 10, came from those next roots, uh, and are part of that same family tree is what leads us to even today, you know, uh, looking at like WWDC sessions where there are certain things that are very different between the devices, the interface stuff, especially like people that are talking about have been talking for the past couple of years. Are they ever going to unify UI kit and app kit across the Mac and the, and iOS? Those things are very different, but some of the underlying frameworks have proceeded almost in lockstep on the desktop and the mobile platforms because of the approach that they took with the software from day one. Going back to that P1 prototype that was uh, click wheel based from the iPod, even if it was a click wheel running on a touchscreen, there of course was the prototype the P2 that won out that was full touchscreen. It's what we know today. But it wasn't like the the mandate for we're going to make a touchscreen device that can fit in your pocket. Let's start there uh, is how it went. As we heard a little bit from the Apple versus Samsung big <laughs> trial, um, and as we're starting to hear about again in these 10th birthday interviews that are coming out, there were larger multi-touch prototypes already in development at Apple before the iPhone project. I think when Steve introduced the iPad, which was the ultimate culmination of these prototypes, he said, like, this is the, the future of computing. This is what all of Apple's work on home computers has moved towards. It's clear that he was also thinking about that before the iPhone came out. Eventually, computing was going to turn into a, a touchscreen device that was probably the size of a eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. So when the iPhone project swung into full gear and it looked like the click wheel paradigm might not be the ideal way to do it, they could turn to this technology that they were already working on, um, not a resistive touchscreen like some early touchscreens that, you know, you really had to like press into or that you might still find at like um, airplane check-in counters or things like that, but a nice capacitive touchscreen that could work with uh, multiple inputs, aka multi-touch. One of the things that I learned recently from these interviews is that the way that I kind of came to learn this story was that there was a tablet project and that 
uh, it was well along, like we were well along the way to the iPad uh, before the iPhone existed. And then uh, things got switched around and they said, miniaturize it first, make the phone first. And there's a certain amount of truth in that. But from what I heard, it sounded like, yes, the the, the original multi-touch prototypes were bigger than that. They were like table scale. They used projectors. And that was still, that was the stable technology that they had, uh, even at the point when they started developing the phone. And there was a parallel track where they were miniaturizing from the size of a table down to the size of a tablet uh, device like an iPad. And that was what got put on hold, but that like the the master concept that multi-touch came from was still this even bigger thing. It wasn't like they had figured out iPad size multi-touch and just needed to shrink the screen and release a different product. It was like they were still figuring out multi-touch on a physical portable screen, even at this point. And also one of them mentioned that um the the screen itself uh, on early multi-touch was plastic, like the iPod. And apparently Steve Jobs wrecked one of them, like, you know, how iPods could get all scratched up. And like, you didn't care when it just was telling you which song was playing, uh, but you cared when it was your email and your web browsing and all of that. And that was what precipitated the switch to glass. Now let's move on from technology that already existed that either inspired or directly led to this iPhone being released to technology that the iPhone has kind of made obsolete since its release. (laughs) Trail of bodies in the (laughs) iPhone's wake. Yeah. Um, Because it was, it was a sea change in portable technology in general. And in 2007, there was a lot of portable technology and fairly advanced portable technology. Uh, We had our episode on Apple product portability that touched on this a little bit, Uh, but there were competitors out there who had products that fit in your pocket and were suddenly not as good as anyone would hope. And the most obvious product to mention that became obsolete from the release of the iPhone was the BlackBerry. Uh, I think there's there's a graph out there somewhere that shows like RIM's uh, stock price in the years following the iPhone and it just declines and declines and the company's still around, but they're, they're basically a whisper of what they used to be. Um, and especially in light of things like the supposed excerpt from the one device book where Phil Schiller says like, look at how well BlackBerry is doing because they have a physical keyboard. We need to have a physical keyboard. It's clear that the multi-touch keyboard, which was adaptable, not just for different, uh, contexts and user experiences, but across languages. And you can draw, you know, uh, uh, elaborate Mandarin characters on a multi-touch keyboard. And you can't do that on a physical key keyboard. It's clear that the the writing was pretty much on the wall for the BlackBerry and other devices like it. And uh, history has proven that out. Of course, at the time of the iPhone's launch, well, I mean, yeah, we've seen there there will be Apple is doomed people uh, until the sun explodes, uh, at which point they will actually finally be doomed with the rest of us. (laughs) But uh, at the time of the iPhone's launch, there was a big war over physical versus uh, touchscreen keyboards and people who's... 
who were convinced that they would never give up their physical keyboards. And uh, those people have either been converted in the intervening years or are sorely disappointed in all mobile phones at this point. Uh, but it was seen as a potential major downside of the iPhone, especially I would I would guess in that broad, in that window of January to June speculation where no one had their hands on it. And I think you're right, Brian, that the the design proved to be the superior one once it was out in the world and people saw just how easily they could use it, how easily they could adapt to it. One of the other uh, competing smartphones that went by the wayside was, of course, the Palm Trail line of smartphones that ran Palm OS. These looked a lot like other Palm handhelds of the day, except they had these goofy little antennas that jump, that poked out the top a centimeter or two. The notion there was, you know, they were a smartphone in as much as they were a PDA plus phone calls. Like that was the only additional feature was it was a Palm PDA that also had one, you know, one application that you could launch on it that was a phone, basically, um, and some limited data connection, although um, the mobile web was not really uh, not really working at that point. Uh, mobile Safari was, was touted as, and really was, the first mobile browser that could load pretty much any page on the internet, uh, at least in some legible form. I say this perhaps being too dismissive in hindsight to say that it would be an almost impossible task to take the Palm operating system and modernize it to the point that you could use it on a full-fledged smartphone, except they did that in in a way with webOS, although the iPhone had run out so far at that point, and Android was also on the rise by the time that webOS was released as a full-fledged operating system. And it didn't have great hardware support. Uh, it didn't have the excellent hardware uh, that the iPhone did, certainly. And that only lasted a couple of years. I, I mean, I guess WebOS technically isn't dead either. Like, I don't know, there's... Every year at CES, someone puts it on a ridiculous appliance that has no business being on. Um, but it is no longer in the mobile phone, smartphone space at all. And of course, there's... Uh, there's one, the, the most interesting product that the iPhone obsoleted was Apple's own product, the iPod, uh, which I guess technically there are still iPod touches around, but as of a few years ago, the traditional iPod, the click wheel iPod is gone. I guess there are still iPod nanos, but I don't know who's buying them, if anyone, in 2017. Um, but this was not unexpected either, given Apple's history within the iPod product line, uh, where, what was it? It was at the iPod Nano announcement that Steve Jobs came out on stage and said, the iPod Mini is our best-selling product of all time, and it's dead. Everyone's like, what? <laughs> it's like, it's dead, we've got something better. And that was essentially what the iPhone was doing as well. I think Apple certainly recognized, like we said, at the original price point, not every iPod user was going to rush out and buy an iPhone, but they knew that with with the superior product that they were putting together, with the deals that were in progress and then uh, came with the 3G and later, that they could erode it away. They could get it to the point where someone who was considering a $150 iPod but was eligible for a $200 upgrade on their phone plan, 
to an iPhone was going to make that leap. And as time progressed, that's exactly what happened. And uh, every quarter we get uh, we get Apple earnings announcements and people put up their graphs of the different product lines. They've stopped announcing uh, separate separate uh, values, uh, revenues for the iPod line because it's not really an ongoing product at this point. Um, but uh, you see it on on the chart there and you see the iPhone's meteoric rise and you see the final rise and plateau and fall of the iPod, but it's way down at the bottom of the chart. And that was more than Apple hoped for, I think. I think that if they had... I mean, remember at the outset in the original announcement, they hoped to get, like, what, like 1% of the U.S. mobile phone market mm-hmm. was was the goal? Well, they smashed it. Um, and I think that if Apple had seen a growth curve uh, where the total iPhone plus iPod sales had matched the growth curve of the iPod to that point, they would have been happy. That would have been just cannibalizing their own product. Um, but they cannibalized it and then some um, with uh, incredible sales of the iPhone. Those are some devices and product lines that the iPhone made obsolete. Um, there are a couple technologies that it also kind of made obsolete across the board as well. Um, one that you just reminded me of when you were talking about the Treo is uh, WAP browsing, W-A-P, the kind of mobile web that existed for dumb phones. Um, and I guess maybe like primitive, smarter devices like the the PDAs and Palm Treos. But I remember having a flip phone that was pay as you go, like literally 10 cents a minute, 10 cents a text, top it up with cards you buy at a gas station that had a button through some loophole that could get on WAP internet for free. And it were these little things that like the pages were designed so that like anchor links instead of a nav bar menu would correspond to the numbers on <laughs> your keypad. So it's like type one to go to the content, type two to go to the something else. And I wonder if if anyone is maintaining WAP versions of their content, like certainly not um, CNN or Fox News or ESPN, because <laughs> I wonder who who would still use that in this day and age. I mean, WAP was the equivalent of like, it's like using links on the desktop. Um, you know, it's use, it's a non-visual browser, essentially. Some very, very limited image support. Yeah, that that's totally gone. Another one uh, we want to get into is, um, it's in our notes as non-visual voicemail, but maybe even the concept of voicemail on mobile phones as it is. And to that point, like, we, we've mentioned that the iPhone was three things and one of them was an internet communicator. And that's primarily what it is now between things like messaging, messaging within your favorite social networks, like Twitter DMS or Facebook messenger to full on like corporations that are built on this, like line and WeChat and WhatsApp. We do a lot of messaging um, to say nothing of text messages and iMessages. We do a lot of messaging that doesn't even need the phone anymore to the point of where if you can't, you know, make contact at the time that you call, I know anecdotally, a lot of people in my generation, my demographic don't leave voicemails anymore (laughs) because, you know, like the, the missed call almost serves as a notification to try and contact the person in some other way. 
Right. And I think there was a, I think there's a culture, like you said, for people of, of our age, especially Ryan, where if you call someone and it goes to voicemail, you text them then because that's the most efficient way to get the message through. And ironically, uh, you know, visual voicemail was a huge feature of the original iPhone. You didn't have to call, remember some weird code to call. You didn't have to put in a voicemail pin. You didn't have to listen to some weird robot lady tell you how many messages you had and poke at buttons just to find out, just to hear a 12-second message that your mom left for you. But the funny thing is that just last year in iOS 10, Apple added another voicemail feature, which is that it now does voicemail transcriptions which is basically the equivalent of leave a voicemail and we'll give the text equivalent for you instead of hang up and send your own text message. Of course, sometimes those are hilariously wrong, um, which is fun. Um, And also, uh, I noticed that, or someone in my family noticed that feature and they said, hey, have you seen this before? And I, I pulled open my phone and I went, huh, I'm not getting those. And it turns out you have, because Apple's privacy stuff, it's done on device and you need a 6S or higher. And I'm still running on an iPhone 6. Um, so I don't, I don't get that, uh, even further enhanced non or visual voicemail. Visual voicemail certainly was something that made instantly, like you said, all the old ways of getting voicemail on a mobile phone feel terrible. So I'm pretty sure that Android has some form of it. I know even some landline companies or, or providers like uh, Verizon or Spectrum or AT&T will even have companion apps for your landline that can do transcription or whatever. So you can check your voicemail for your landline from your phone away from it. And it's presented in a visual voicemail way. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, like, a you know, UI table view does not seem like revolutionary technology at this point. But com- compared to having to go through that roboticized phone tree, um, it's a major advantage. And I mean, I think that's carried over in so many aspects of what we expect from both desktop and mobile computing now is that, like, if you're calling a company to get some sort of customer service task done, if you could do that in an app interface or a website interface, as opposed to calling their national 1-800 number and trying to navigate your way through that, it's just a better experience. And this was a core phone feature that the iPhone applied that to. And now we expect that for everything. It's like, um, you know, uh, I'm going to be moving shortly. You moved recently and, you know, probably things like setting up like a new utilities account or something. And like you, right, like you have to call them and give them all and and go through a phone tree and then wait on hold and then speak to a human and then give them all this, you know, read numbers back and forth over the phone and make sure that they heard them properly. And it's like, if you just gave me a visual interface for this, it would be so much superior. Like that is the that is the core truth behind that interface there. Yeah. So those are some of the things that disappeared. And we were talking about um, some of the improvements. Uh, and of course, the iPhone also laid the groundwork for a lot of technology that followed it that uh, either we take for granted now because it's been f- so long or is still on the forefront of computing. So obviously the the one that, uh, like I said, has entered into the lore is the iPad. And the fact that 
because it was delayed until after the iPhone by a couple years, that in some respects, the iPad got to be done properly. Because at that point, we were, uh, I mean, I guess the iPad still launched running something called iPhone OS. Um, but very quickly thereafter, uh, it was renamed as iOS and now runs this whole platform and suite of devices uh, for Apple. And of course, now with six or seven more years uh, since then, the iOS that runs on the phone and the iOS that runs on iPads is again starting to diverge and specialize. But the fact that there was that core work that had been done, uh, you know, taking that OS X core, narrowing it down for a portable device, and then like re-expanding it for the iPad uh, made for a probably better product than uh, if they had taken a stab at that multi-touch environment uh, for the first time. I think, you know, we said that when the iPhone launched, there were lots of perhaps unfair or short-sighted comparisons made to mobile phones. If the iPad had launched first, I think there would have been a lot of unfair comparisons to desktop computing and laptops, and those still persist even though the iPad is an extremely successful product in its own right if you just like look at that as a business of its own. So I think that the fact that iOS was already well on its way uh, was extremely important there. We've already talked a little bit about multi-touch as something that the iPhone was built on, but in the same way that it paved the way to the iPad, I think it paved the way for multi-touch as a general purpose method of interacting with computers that have screens. Um, gestures like swiping, not only just as famously was introduced with the iPhone as swiping to unlock your phone instead of flipping a phone open or typing in a passcode, uh, swiping is now a metaphor for lots of things like dating apps. And, and like from there, it almost enters the lexicon, like swipe left on a person, even though it's in real life. I still don't. The one problem with swipe gestures is I still have no idea what people mean when they say swipe right. I don't know if the content is supposed to go right or if my finger is supposed to go right. Oh, it's kind of like natural direction scrolling. It's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but I was talking with our old friend, Will Bostwick, and he brought this up that like a lot of multi-touch gestures that were introduced with the first iPhone are now kind of expected. And he brought up the example of flying on an airplane that had um, screens in the seat backs. And one of the things on those uh, screens is a flight map. And he loaded it up just to see like where the progress of the flight was and tried to pinch to zoom the map for like an appropriate uh, level. And it wouldn't work because it wasn't an iPhone. But that gesture is kind of innate now in, in manipulating content and uh, the, the size of it on a screen. You, you just spread your fingers or, or pinch them in. Right. And I mean, even even when your brain realizes what you're using, I, I think I had this experience with that same type of thing, like a in-flight display. You're like, oh, this this is not a proper multi-touch display. Pinching, like you can tell just by touching the surface, you know, it's not the glass surface. And you're like, pinching is probably not going to work here, but double tap should. No, not a chance. But even that, like the double tap and... um Two-finger double tap, do you ever use that? No. Oh, so in, in any place where you can pinch to zoom in iOS, it's been this way for years, um, instead of 
pinching outward, which doesn't make sense, you know, spreading your fingers instead of spreading your fingers to zoom out. In any view that does that, you can uh, you can tap with two fingers at the same time and it'll do a zoom out gesture. That's good to know. I use it all the time. <laughs> um, and another way to kind of track the spread of multi-touch outward from the iPhone is to kind of see when it came back to the Mac. Um, we've talked about like early Mac laptops a bunch on this show. And one thing that I remember is that when I took a PowerBook to college in 2003, I had to uh, download and purchase a separate, I guess at that point, a system preference pane that would enable uh, the right side of my trackpad to be used purely for scrolling. There was no two-finger gesture for scrolling. And I think that became native before the iPhone's release, but certainly after the iPhone came out, Apple and, you know, like other phone manufacturers and everybody started adding in the the common multi-touch gestures to their hardware. In Apple, you can see it that when they adopted the unibody structure for their laptops in October of 2008, the trackpad got the overhaul to basically what we have now, the kind of glass surface where the whole surface is a button and uh, it was appropriate for all the kinds of multi-touch gestures. Snow Leopard, the next year, gave the capability to recognize those gestures for even older laptops. And then in the final culmination of this, the standalone trackpad accessory purely for, you know, doing these kinds of gestures, the Magic Trackpad, came out in July 2010, three years after the iPhone made multi-touch a paradigm of computer user experience. We've also seen in the laptops the fact that Apple considers having a large multi-touch surface to be important to computing, even on the Mac, because they keep getting larger and larger, comically larger, every new design iteration. So when the Touch Bar MacBook Pros came out uh, last year, uh, the the trackpad, especially on the 15-inch, got even larger. I think it's even larger than the standalone standalone Magic Trackpad 2. Um, because they see this as like, this is the way that you should, uh, that you should control objects on, on a device is with these, these gestures. There are a bunch of other smaller features that have made their way over, uh, like you said, back to the Mac, uh, either overtly or just kind of in the normal course of updates to OS X, now Mac OS, uh, some of them with great uh, acclaim. You know, a lot of the things that uh, are useful productivity features, and now that iCloud syncing is really quite reliable, things like reminders and notes and uh, Safari history syncing and those sorts of things coming to the Mac. Uh, you know, there was no reminders app. Uh, before the iPhone, there was no notes. Well, there was the notepad, uh, but it was uh, much simpler. And so those kind of apps came to the Mac and uh, I think have offered a lot of benefit. Then there are other things that have come to the Mac, like Launchpad, which is basically Springboard for the Mac, and nobody uses it ever, to my knowledge, um, at least not people that I know. I think most people don't even know that it's there unless you accidentally hit F4. And then it's never like a, oh, it's like a, ugh. I'm looking down at my brand new uh, Magic Keyboard with numeric keypad, uh, and it's still got that stupid grid on F4. Hmm. So those are a lot of Apple technologies 
that are all building on their internal work on the iPhone and iOS. But of course, there are things in the wider world that have changed significantly because of the iPhone and iOS. We mentioned the smartphones that went away. Of course, there's a rise of the comparable smartphones that now exist, and that's essentially all Android devices. And uh, the Android devices come in different flavors from different manufacturers, and one of the most infamous ones uh, that you mentioned, I think, earlier in the show, Brian, is some of Samsung's uh, Android devices that looked so familiar in terms of both their hardware and their software design that there has been a long, drawn-out legal battle between Apple and Samsung over basically just copycatting the entire iPhone look and feel. And, you know, the the thing on Samsung's side, which I have some sympathy for at this level, is you can't patent a rounded rectangle, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is true. Like, I mean, the shape the shape of a phone is defined by what we learned from the original iPhone, but it's nothing particularly special. You know, just the same way that all TVs are 16 by 9 rectangles that sit on a stand or go on your wall. Well, that's because we just sort of figured out that that's a, an ideal way of presenting content. So the same way a smartphone with a that is almost all screen on the front and rounded on the edges. That's the ideal way of presenting content and not poking you. Um, so they have a point there, but then some of the things that came out in that lawsuit was like down to the fact that uh, the stock apps that shipped on Samsung's skinned version of Android were all the same colors as the corresponding icons that shipped in the stock apps in iOS. So like, they had a music app that was orange because that was the iPod color, uh, the iPod app color, and then later the music app color. And now in the Apple Music era, that's changed again. But at the time that this uh, design war was going on, it was the same. You know, the messages app was green. The web browser and mail apps were blue. It's like, come on, guys. <laughs> you know, um, you can get the functionality without having to copy the, it down to the color. Um, and so I believe, I don't even know if that whole legal brouhaha is totally over. Um, I don't think it'll ever, ever be over. And it's such a weird relationship, of course, with Samsung also manufacturing iPhone components. But that's, that's the way it is in the, in the world with the iPhone. And speaking of the world with the iPhone. We want to wrap up this episode with a look at the like worldwide cultural and economic impact of the iPhone. And of course, it's a huge impact with over a billion devices sold. And a lot of these impacts come from iterations of the iPhone, not necessarily something that was there on day one. Uh, but it's, it, you know, it doesn't even need to be said that the first iPhone paved the way for future iterations of the iPhone, which have led to these changes in our culture. One thing that was there from the very beginning on the iPhone and that has had an impact on our culture is autocorrect. And this isn't the same as the kind of spell check that had been in word processors where you get a red squiggly line under a word or you would just run a spell check function. This was as the name implies, automatic correction, like in real time as you type, 
because uh, one of the keys or, or gestures that would trigger, yes, replace what I just typed with your suggestion was space. So if you finished typing a misspelled word, just hit space and kept typing, it would automatically correct. And I think the first widespread, almost like meme of this in our culture were the autocorrect fails where, you know, someone would type something that was obscene or send the completely wrong message, but not realize it because it happened automatically. And so oh, this like cottage industry of blogs that would collect screenshots of these failures, or I think <laughs> all too often, like just blatant photoshops that would get the font wrong or, <laughs> you know, the layout wrong and just try and like script them. But it became a part of our culture. And I think even today, like autocorrect can be, you know, like the scapegoat for so many things, whether or not it actually is. And it also has become like a way of text editing, similar to some of the OS 10 features we talked about. Autocorrect in its iPhone implementation also made its way to the Mac instead of, you know, becoming, instead of remaining the kind of you have to explicitly tell your text editor to check your spelling, it, the Mac also has autocorrect like inline, just like the iPhone. I turned that off right away. I turned it off in like code editors, but I keep it on for like long form writing. That's funny though. You mentioned about the autocorrect fails. I think, <laughs> and we mentioned earlier the Newton's legacy. Maybe, maybe that's it. Uh, it's sort of a eat up Martha 2.0. Ah, yeah. iPhone OS 1 brought us uh, the keyboard features. iPhone OS 2 though was in many ways still the biggest update to the iPhone because it brought the era of apps and the app store and fart apps and all kinds of ridiculous things. Um, but the ability for native apps to be created for and especially sold on the iPhone led to a gold rush and really led to, I mean, I still have a newspaper clipping of uh, when I advocated for uh, the word app to be voted as word of the year for the American Dialects Society, um, and it won. Um, and the notion was that it had become a cultural phenomenon, whereas people would talk about computer programs or applications uh, prior to the App Store. Once the App Store was a phenomenon, the word app was everywhere, and it referred to apps not just on iOS, but on competing platforms, on anything that allowed for an application like interface, um, you know, from cars to refrigerators. Um, and, uh, of course, there was the massive ad campaign for iOS and iPhone at that time. There's an app for that. I think Apple even uh, got a trademark on that phrase. Uh and there have been battles over who can call things app stores ever since. Uh, I think those have mostly fizzled out. Um, but the notion of having apps to perform the tasks of our day-to-day -day lives is entirely due to the iPhone. One historical note that I think is fun here is that uh, it's not the first time that Apple sold apps for portable devices. Um, if you remember, uh, if, if P1 had only won out in that battle, um, back to the ClickWheel iPods, uh, if you remember, preloaded, they came with a couple of games. There was the Paratrooper game, 
um, where you had to shoot down the guys that were attacking your base, and there was a solitaire game that you could play with the click wheel. And then at some point, an SDK was opened up so that third-party developers could create games for the click wheel iPod. And I think, you know, a couple hundred of them were created, not a whole huge number of them, but you could buy them through the iTunes store. Um, and it's kind of funny that, like, you know, to me, I think of that as that was like the proof of concept that they could do it. You know, some probably there was a discussion. I mean, there was the bigger discussion within Apple of the sweet solution, the web apps versus native apps and opening that up to third party developers. Um, but at some point, even after that decision had been made, someone said, okay, great, but what's the infrastructure going to be? And they could put, you know, people point to the iTunes store as they were selling music, but that's still like a big infrastructure leap. But I'm sure someone in a meeting at Apple said, well, we've also been selling software bundles for the iPod. It's not nearly as big as the music business, but it's all there. It's all web objects. I definitely had uh, Sonic the Hedgehog and Peggle for... At the time that I bought the the those games, the third generation fatty iPod Nano, it was a terrible experience. How on earth do you play Sonic on a click wheel? I don't know. I think it was uh, the buttons. It was not great. <laughs> Apps, of course, were and continue to be this uh, cultural phenomenon, but uh, very much so an economic phenomenon. And it's not like the job of software developer didn't exist before iPhone apps, but it certainly has taken off in a way that was unprecedented. Um, one figure that you can uh, use to, to cite that is that at WWDC this year, you know, kind of around the 10th anniversary of the iPhone, but the ninth anniversary of the App Store, Apple announced that they have hit $70 billion in payouts to developers. A $70 billion over nine year uh, industry that basically didn't exist in that state beforehand. And Ed, as you mentioned earlier in the show, there's about a billion iOS devices out there. And uh, there's a cool note here that if you factor in Apple's 30% cut, that means almost $100 in app sales per iPhone. So people buy, you know, if they're 99 cent apps or 99 cent in app purchases, probably more likely, you know, 100 of those her phone. Right. And I think I think that that was interesting because there's still a lot of talk about the race to the bottom in the app store. Uh, and that basically like, oh, there's no market there anymore. Uh, and the fact that the average person won't pay for any apps. But $100 per iPhone sold as as an average means that, yeah, okay, so maybe the, the average person keeps their phone for three years. So they're only paying $33 a year for for apps. Yeah, that's that's a small amount per person, but it's still a huge industry. Another big economic factor to consider. Uh, Ed, you mentioned the the kind of the revenue by sector graphs that Apple uh, pundits like to create after each earnings call. And it used to be that the iPod line was the major chunk, and now it's the iPhone line. And as of the most recent earnings call, as of this recording, uh, the fiscal second quarter of 2017, the iPhone 
is almost 70% of Apple's quarterly revenue, which is a lot of money. Apple's like one of the richest companies in the world, and almost 70% of that comes from the iPhone. People jokingly refer to it not being Apple, but it being like iPhone Inc., because it's such a big piece of the pie. But the fact of the matter is then that also, I mean, I think this last time around, people said, um, was it was it maybe something that was actually mentioned on the call that basically like the watch would be the lar- world's largest watchmaker and maybe a Fortune 500 company in its own right or something, and it's not even reported out separately. So it's 70% of, a, of the world's largest pie. <laughs> <laughs> Moving back onto the cultural stuff, I think one of the biggest cultural things it's it, it's a cultural technological combination uh, that the iPhone has given us is Siri and all the technology that goes around it. Uh, Siri was launched with the iPhone 4S, and now we live in a world of digital voice assistants. Uh, I have Amazon TubeLady assistants in my house and Siri on my phone, and it's one of the things that we expect as uh, as a piece of a technological platform today is to have some sort of voice interface. Uh, we did an episode a while back on the history of voice interfaces and how they got to where they are. And since we were talking about cultural impact, there's also some things that uh, I would say that the popularity of Siri and and the general familiarity with voice assistants has allowed uh, to happen in pop culture. Things like the movie Her, which is all about someone developing a relationship with their AI assistant, which I think, you know, say what you will about the, the movie from a critical perspective, uh, but the fact that that would even be like sort of greenlit and seen as a potential major motion picture uh, is due to the fact that so many people can actually relate to that kind of experience of being able to talk to a device in their pocket, which was just completely impossible uh, even after the iPhone's launch, uh, only really for uh, you know two-thirds of its existence. And one final thing uh, that I think is maybe it's a little bit more of how the iPhone is part of a give-and-take with culture is uh, the design trends that have happened in the iPhone and iOS. Of course, with iOS 7, there was a huge redesign of the operating system going to a very flat aesthetic. And I think as I, as I look around in the world, I tend to see things in print advertising, in video, in all kinds of other aspects of visual design where that flat aesthetic, clean, thin weight fonts, that looks good. That looks modern. That looks like this decade. Uh, and the fact that the iPhone, again, like borrowed from, you know, I, I think people on Johnny Ive's team are very in tune with des- the design world writ large, not just designing products for Apple. And they saw where some of these trends were going. They had strong opinions and they brought that to the iPhone and iOS. And of course, then that disseminated that out to the hundreds of millions of people who use those devices in the world. And uh, of course, that design had its critics as well. Uh, I also kind of agree that iOS 7 went a little bit too flat, a little bit away from interface design to pure visual design uh, that had introduced some problems, and that 
things have been refined and it looks, you know, still modern um, and even more polished as we get to iOS 10, iOS 11 coming out later this year. And we've seen a lot of the stuff in the betas. Uh, I did a post on PicoMac about whether Apple is crafting a really coherent design language and whether they should maybe call it something other than the way iOS looks. Uh, because it, you know, the way iOS looks is such a big phenomenon that in one respect, it deserves its own name. And other companies have done that, uh, like Google with material design and Microsoft with introducing fluid design. Um, so that concept is out there and it's participating in that, uh, you know, broader dialogue of what good design is, uh, across all kinds of media. Yeah, I was going to bring up that post at PicoMac too as well. Specifically with regards to Google's material design, you know, however complete and contained that design language is, I think it has to, I think no one would completely disagree that it wasn't in some way inspired by the design trends that uh, iOS 7 probably put out there first in the most completely envisioned way, this flat design. And Google's material design isn't just for Android. It's spreading to all of their products, their web apps, uh, you know, other things that they run, but also to their logo. I think we're all used to the current Google logo by now, but it was a pretty significant change from the old, like, beveled serifed font that's now, like, a very clean, uh, sans-serif, geometric, solid colors uh, that's emblematic of material design. So, yeah. Definitely give credit to the iPhone around the time of iOS 7 for setting some cultural tones. So I think that brings us all the way up to the present day. So here we are on the iPhone's 10th anniversary, 10th birthday, and we've covered all of these different aspects of what led to it and what it has accomplished and influenced in the past 10 years. Of course, there's, there's so, so much. Uh, around the iPhone, around iOS. This is maybe one of the biggest topics we've tried to tackle. So there are certainly things that uh, we missed in uh, in a brief show. Uh, so if there is anything that you think that we should pick up and follow up in a future episode, please get in touch with us. You can do that in the usual ways. You can go to our website where there's a contact form, or you can find us on Twitter. Show Twitter is at symbol underscore beep. We're also individually on Twitter. I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at Ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and happy birthday, iPhone. I feel like there should be cake.